In this episode of Schneps Connects, we're going to be talking education and particularly charter schools. In the early 90s, a group of volunteers transformed an abandoned, garbage-strewn lot into two baseball diamonds for the youth of East Harlem. 30 years later, the organization serves thousands of children across East Harlem and the South Bronx through a network of free, extended day, extended year, dream charter schools and community sports-based youth development programs. Today, DREAM is led by co-CEOs Richard Berlin and Eve Calavito, and boasts six DREAM charter schools in three New York City neighborhoods, including East Harlem, Mott Haven, and Highbridge. DREAM now serves over 2,000 youth from pre-K to pre-college across those communities through a growing network of inclusive, extended day schools and sports programs like we discussed. Today, to share Dream's mission and, and what he does is Richard Berlin, who is the founding chair of Dream Charter School, and he served as the executive director since 1997 and became co-CEO in 2021. Richard began his journey as a baseball coach in 1994 with Dream. During his tenure, Dream has grown from a summer recreation program with one staff member to a thriving community-based organization recognized locally and nationally with numerous awards for programmatic and operational excellence. So Richard, it's great to have you here. Thanks for joining. Great to be here. Thank you. Good morning. So, you know, I'd love for you just to, to outline what a charter school is. I, I think it would be helpful for people that just don't really have a, a sense of what the difference is between a charter school and, and other, you know, public schools in New York City, particularly. Yeah, well, that first point is the big one. Charter schools are public schools. They just are public schools that are operated by private nonprofit entities. Uh, and like many of the services, health, elder care, early childhood that are essentially that the government reimburses for their service, that is what a charter school is. It, and at the core of the charter bargain is this idea that the nonprofit organizations that run charters get a lot of autonomy to run schools that are expected to meet a very high performance bar and take good care of their kids' safety. Uh, and in exchange for that, they get funded. And regardless of how good they are, every five years, they get reviewed and either renewed or not renewed, as the case may be. In a public system, particularly in schools and districts serving low-income Black and brown kids, with so many schools that are not meeting uh, high benchmarks on the traditional public side, we think that charters uh, offer great alternatives for families who typically and historically don't have a lot of choice or any choice of where they can send their kids to school. Thank you for sharing that. Tell a little bit more about the history of Dream Charter Schools, because I love, you know, in that introduction, sharing how it started organically and grew from there. Yeah. So as you know, we're about a 32-year-old nonprofit. We started as this Little League baseball program, took an abandoned lot, built a ball field, 75 teenage boys our first year. The folks who were here, including myself, noticed very quickly that while a safe place to play was really important for kids and adults, children showed up every day with a myriad of needs and enormous potential and, and not enough opportunities to, to pursue and bring that potential to life. So we just started building programs to support that. First, a summer learning program because kids came and played ball in the summer and we're like, oh, you know, we notice a lot of kids can't read and we have some teachers who are coaches and wow. we'd never heard of the achievement gap or summer learning loss. But that was sort of our first foray into uh, you want dessert, you got to eat your vegetables. And those same kids who would be here in the summer started showing up after school and we're like, 
in our little storefront office on 100th Street. And we said, what are you doing here? And they're like, well, this is where we come when we're not in school. So we started building after school programs. And those kids grew up into teenagers. They had a different set of needs, some academics, some just related to growing up uh, as a teenager and adolescent and in tough communities. And so we started building a program where All of our kids played on a baseball or softball team, and they joined that team no later than middle school, and they would stay on the same team all the way through high school. And the power of that team was really the organizing principle. And so not only would you have a set of peers who were playing together and pursuing the same life outcomes, but you'd have a set of adults around them who were consistent in their life. And lo and behold, when we looked up, these kids were doing amazing things in a community with a 50% plus high school dropout rate. All of these kids were graduating high school in a community with the highest rates of of teenage pregnancy and nobody was getting pregnant or having babies. And uh, in a community where many kids uh, would find themselves on on the wrong side of the criminal justice system, our kids' gangs were their teams. Um, Mm -hmm. Just like a gang, they had colors and membership and affiliation and a place to gain respect and to lead and to follow. But of course, all of their work was pointed towards positive aims. And we had sort of built some momentum organizationally. I think by this time, we had about 500 kids in the program. And uh, we were busy patting ourselves on the back for uh, figuring out how to help kids grow up healthy and strong. And then we started paying attention to where our kids were going and what their trajectories looked like after high school. And one or two or three years out, while our kids had avoided, you know, a set of outcomes which we deem derailing or negative. That's different than a positive, but you know, the absence of a negative is a good thing, but it's different than having all the skills and tools you need to have agency and power in the world. And we got really uncomfortable with the idea that we could have five and 10 year relationships with young people. And at the end of our time with them, they were sort of not in a place to, in our in our parlance and our mission, our, the tagline on our mission statement is we help kids recognize their potential and realize their dreams. Mm. We felt like we had gotten really good at the recognize your potential part. We had reminded kids that they could be and deserve to be anything in the world, but their toolbox was kind of half full. And we looked at, you know, the reasons for that. And, you know, you've you've got low-income families and first-generation students and a lot of complexity related to poverty. But to us, there was no bigger deal than the fact that most of our kids went to failing schools 40 hours a week, 40 weeks a year for their entire life. And no matter what we did every day after school and on weekends and every day in the summer, swimming against the stream of a, of a failing education was really too much for most kids. So that was the time when the charter window in New York State, New York City, was opening widest during the Bloomberg administration. And uh, we said, uh, okay, how hard could this be? We've done, you know, we turned our baseball league into a summer program. We turned our summer program into after school. We turned after school into multi-year youth development. Truly a school couldn't be that much different <laughs> to be uh in politic or impolite, we got our, our ass handed to us out the door. I think the mm-hmm. first year we had 150 kindergartners and 51st graders, and, and you would have think it was not impressive. But fortunately, in the in the second year, we were joined by my now co-CEO, Eve Colavito, who had launched a charter school in the Bronx called the Bronx Charter School and uh, was ready to lend a hand. And she whipped the place into shape. And since then, two things have happened. One, we've grown really strong, robust schools here in East Harlem, but we've also started to slowly replicate that in the communities of Mott Haven, uh, 
and in Highbridge by Yankee Stadium. And second, and I think most importantly, is we've developed a model of school, which are extended day, extended year, and highly inclusive. I could start with the last of those monikers. Highly inclusive means that, you know, we're truly public. A lot of times people knock the charter system for cherry picking kids or or to pushing kids out who have who are English language learners or have special education needs. Dream takes all comers. It takes them every day. Uh, if we have a spot in our school, we fill it immediately. And the result is we have a, a really complex population. Uh, we have higher special education populations than the districts we work in. We have higher ELL populations than two of the three districts we work in. And particularly in the Bronx, we have high populations of of families who are homeless or living in transitional housing. But our view is, if we don't do the job, who does? So we sort of dig in. And and then our view is that our model, which has kids here from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., five days a week, 46 weeks a year, is particularly well-suited to the needs of our community, which is a lot of low-income working families and a lot of kids whose needs don't just include a rigorous academic program, but include social-emotional wellness, include mental and physical health, and require deep connections with families and communities, which we spend a lot of time cultivating. Are most charter schools similar in terms of their missions? How could you describe DREAM being different from other charter schools if there is a difference? Yeah, I I think Dream's special sauce is this holistic approach to kids that, while certainly there are sort of different flavors and brands of charters, uh, I would say at the top of the list for most charters is, okay, let's build a strong, rigorous academic program uh, that will prepare kids for next levels. And, And I think, while everyone would agree that kids have needs beyond that academic piece, resourcing that is challenging. We have this advantage that we we started doing all this work out of school. So whereas most organizations come to their charter work as school people, we kind of come to our charter work as community family people who decided to do a school. And there were a couple advantages to that. One is, is we have and had deep connections in the communities where we started school. So we weren't new Mm-hmm. To, to the communities we landed in. And the second is we actually had an economic model which supported this. So the work I started talking about, baseball and after school and summer, has very limited public reimbursement options. So most of our funding was private. Mm-hmm. Today, we're more like two-thirds, one-thirds public to private, but it's that third of our budget, which is the private money, which allows us to extend the school day, which allows us to extend the school year and really sort of address the holistic needs of kids as opposed to, okay, we've got 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. or 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. taken care of and good luck, you know, good luck after school and good luck in the summer and good luck in all these interstitial spaces where kids are growing and developing also. And so it really is our history and our financial model that has supported that history has allowed us to build this more integrated system. And is that private money being raised from individuals? Does it come from corporations? Does it come from sending out RFPs for grants? Not money raised. Uh, yes to all, by hook or by crook, though no crook part, Josh. 
we've over the last 30 years built an extraordinary network of donors, certainly individuals who find resonance in our mission. But a lot of corporate New York is deeply invested in Dream's work. And of course, there's a really robust foundation community as well. And so those institutions. So we uh, go to the salt mines every single day. We spend a lot of time asking and plenty of time getting no's, but we consider no just to be, you've made your first mistake in acknowledging our existence and and we'll just keep getting in front of you until you decide uh, it's worth your investment. So I hear you're continuing your expansion with opening a new school in the South Bronx. And I guess, you know, one, one of the things that I'm curious about is as far as infrastructure, when you're expanding, are you taking over schools that potentially were already in place that needed improvement or is it uh, new facilities or is it a combination of both? Yeah, so all of the above. So all of our schools are from scratch. And, and you know, the way I described that first school opening with a K-1 is how we go. And, and usually what you have to do is you got to find a place to incubate one because just showing up and finding 75,000 square feet for your 800 kids yeah. uh, that's ready for a school is, is not such easy magic. Uh, and second, even if you could find the place, you wouldn't have enough kids to pay the bills. You've got to be able to fill the building. So we arrive someplace, we find incubation space. Occasionally, the city, uh, the DOE will provide some of those spaces. That's a highly charged political complex yeah. thing. And then we set about figuring out how to build them. So the building I'm I'm talking to you from now in East Harlem was a really transformative project. It was the first public school building built in East Harlem in 51 years when we opened its doors to the place where our conversation started about the public system. Find me an industry that hasn't retooled in 50 years. That's still alive, sort of a shocking thing. And this building was a great project. We took a piece of land owned by the New York City Housing Authority that was uh, underutilized. Not only built our school, but we built 90 units of low-income housing, a new public park, really a hub. And it was a mix of public finance dollars, uh, public dollars and private money that did this uh, really a special project. Our next one uh, in the Bronx, I don't know if it's a little different and a little bigger and and maybe it's special in its own ways. New Yorkers might be familiar with a building that that they often call either the iHeartRadio building or the History Channel building. It's a... Yeah, sure. um, Signs you see them. um, That's right. Today, today it's got a big Uber sign on it. Anyway, it's, it's a 100 125-year-old ice house that was built by a guy named Colonel Jacob Rupert. If you're a Yankee fan, you know that the Colonel owned the Yankees and built Yankee Stadium in in the early 1900s. But his real business was he was a beer baron, and his brewery took up 12 city blocks on the Upper East Side. And uh, I guess if you were a beer baron, you wanted your beer cold, so you had an ice house. And that building, which is the address is 20 Bruckner Boulevard, was the Rupert Ice House. And it's an ice house until World War II, until somebody invents commercial refrigeration. And then it's a generic warehouse. And and like a lot of buildings uh, in the South Bronx, it's abandoned in the 70s and 80s. And we found it about four years ago. The owner of the building originally bought it for the billboard and was simply using the this 200,000 square foot building as a stand for this huge sign, which is actually wow. the second largest billboard in the state of New York. And we set to work, as we say, unfreezing the Rupert Ice House. And uh, I guess today we're exactly 30 days away from opening the building to our high school, but at scale, we will have 1,300 children in that building, grades pre-K through 12. It's sort of a, a truly unique 
building architecturally, nobody would build something like this again. Our library, which was the tank room, has 70-foot ceilings and the the arts quad has 30-foot windows that look on lower uh, midtown Manhattan in the Empire State wow. Building. And uh, just in case that all wasn't cool enough, uh, the architect we hired to redesign it for us is a guy named David Ajay. David is most well-known for being the architect of the National Museum of African American History and Culture at the Smithsonian. Very cool. Um, certainly the most famous Black architect ever and um, has never done a school and has never done a project in the Bronx. And this will probably be the South Bronx's first contemporary architectural destination. And uh, for kids of the South Bronx and Harlem and East Harlem to call this their home will really be an extraordinary thing. That's phenomenal. Congratulations. We have to get one of our reporters over there to do a tour. Oh, yeah. It's something to say. It's something yeah, to say. Sure, sure. You know, one of the things that that stuck with me was you talking about, you know, preparing kids, you know, after they go through their education or seeing that they're successful. How do you work with students preparing for college? So kids who graduate from DREAM, we don't call them alums, we call them legends. And our legends program after high school is a six-year continuum uh, where we essentially support our kids to and through college and into careers. But we sort of also think of high school as closely connected to that. So that really the point of high school is not to graduate high school. The point of high school is to prepare you for adulthood. And really our entire model, which starts as young as three or four years old with kids, the logic model of our work is based on what is a young person going to look like at age 23, 24, 25? Mm -hmm. What are the sets of assets and skills they're going to need? What are the places they're going to go? And what are the set of inputs we need to invest in over the course of their life to make sure they get there uh, and are, are ready for that opportunity? So like any high school in the world we have that, that's worth their salt, we've got a really strong college preparation and access program, all the things that any affluent kid would get, SAT prep and college visits and nice. on-campus meetings and we're going to help you write your essay and all these, and we're going to find you financial aid and all these things. But we're also thinking about the skills kids need to thrive outside of school. So kids get their first jobs with us actually in the summer before ninth grade. They work in our summer program for elementary school kids. Most of them were in that program themselves. So it's good revenge to return them as coaches and counselors and teachers assistants. And uh, they, they love to come back and tell us how tough the kids are to work with and Surely they weren't like that and they don't know what's happened to kids. So they work with us for a couple of years in high school. Then they start getting work experiences with our corporate partners. And even when they go off post high school, the majority of our kids will head to four-year colleges and we support them in finding employment in the summers in between their college years. There is between 10 and 20% of every graduating class that does not head off to school. Uh, we think these are kids you know, in some cases, they may have struggled academically. And in some cases, they may have decided they want to move into a career pathway sooner. So we work mm -hmm. hard at building partnerships across several verticals, finance, healthcare, sports, media and communications, where our kids cannot just get jobs, but really can land into workplace roles that they can thrive in, you know, beyond an entry level capacity, because, you know, the, the world is complex and changing fast. And 
we're not interested in raising the next generation of consumers. We want to make sure we're raising the next generation of citizens. And in order to do that, you've got to build some real skills and you've got to be in jobs that have a trajectory to grow in them. So we start working on that when kids are in high school and we commit to supporting kids um, through college and into careers for six years post high school. It sounds absolutely phenomenal. And you're having such a positive impact on so many young people. And it's really great to hear that you're expanding and that you, you know, create a model that really is working, which, you know, this city so desperately needs. So Richard, thank you so much for, for sharing, you know, Dream's mission and your story with us today. Um, honored and uh, appreciate the good thoughts. And uh, we would love to have you guys see our new building in, in Mod Haven anytime. It'll hopefully make some news when we open it in January. So, so come visit us then. Yeah, for sure. Listen, that has to be celebrated. Absolutely. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. Make sure to subscribe to Schneps Connects wherever you get your podcasts or stream us on our website at podcast.schnepsmedia.com. <laughs>